Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Lena Anderson, an independent futurist, author, philosopher, and publisher. And she's a member of the Club of Rome. How about that? Welcome, Lena. Thank you. Great to have you here. Looking forward to this conversation. So have I. Yeah, this, this should be good. I know our audience is interested in this topic for sure. We actually had Lena's co-author of an earlier book, The Nordic Secret, on. That was Thomas Bjorkman. He came on to discuss that book in EP67. Lena was very involved in writing the book. In fact, Thomas said she wrote most of it and that he was more of a consultant. So if you're interested in more of her thinking, check out EP67 or better still, read the book, The Nordic Secret. Today, we're mostly going to focus on her most recent book. I think it's her most recent book, Metamodernity. So let's start with that. Very much in congruence with thinking of other people like the Game B community and some others, I would suggest that you frame the need for metamodernity as a way to address the meta-crisis. And in fact, I'm going to read some of your words right back at you, and I would like you to expand on that a little bit. We're approaching a tipping point that will involve some or all of the following, the climate, mass extinction of species, artificial intelligence, and a fundamental restructuring of the economy as software, robots, and drones are replacing millions of workers in several national economies. I think that comes pretty close to the metacrisis. I would also suggest that runaway inequality and such also alienation of people from their societies or other things that seem to be approaching a tipping point as well. So talk a little bit about how you see the fact that we're approaching a tipping point as what brings forth the need for metamodernity. Tipping point, I mean, in so many places and in so many aspects of our lives and, and the things that I listed there are just in the, so to speak, physical world and at the uh, grand scale of, of a global level, what we're talking about, or what you just said, is, is the meaning-making crisis or the sense-making crisis or the uh, epistemological crisis or the existential crisis, what goes on inside us and how our meaning-making is not matching the outer world uh, the way that it used to. And I mean, we all grow up in a society that teaches us what is good and bad and what is uh, polite behavior. And uh, you go to school and then the teachers and your parents tell you that if you learn this and you study that, then you can get a job and you can buy a house and establish a family and get a life. And there's all, I mean, there are all these things that we grow up with knowing or, or learn. And then for, I mean, the past 200 years, we have lived in the modern world and life has been, you know, there's been changes and new technologies and we've had surprises and there was a man walking on the moon and then the, uh, the Berlin Wall came down and there's like, there's been surprises and, and things happening. But overall, uh, whatever you learned in, in childhood and in your youth and, and you took an education has been useful knowledge. And, and we have in the West a mixed economy. We have uh, democratic institutions. We have liberal democracy. We have, I mean, there's a way of understanding the society in which we live and we know how to behave within that. And that's very much related to the technologies of 
the steam engine and the combustion engine and maybe some of the uh, electronics that came 30 to 40 years ago. But overall, we have been able as adults to, you know, understand the world in which we live and uh, and provide for ourselves, the vast majority of us. And, and life has been pretty good. And now there are so many changes and there are so many tipping points that we risk facing in the future that one, we need to prepare for them. Two, some of the changes that are already happening are so big that a lot of people simply are, are losing their foothold in their own life and in their own communities. And, and what you did to survive and thrive five years ago, 10 years ago, is not sufficient anymore. So at, at the very personal level, a lot of people are losing foothold in their own life. And at a, at a bigger level, entire communities are losing foothold in the national and global economy if, if factories close or if, if jobs move to uh, other countries. And at the national level, the technological development, right now we're actually speaking from each our side of, of the Atlantic and part of our communication in, in setting up this meeting has been in which time zones are we? And so at what time will we be speaking? But these technologies, and, and particularly the, the social media, but also the technologies in the financial sector and just the fact that we all have one or two credit cards and whenever you make a, a transaction, you buy, a I don't know, a bottle of milk or um, a newspaper or whatever you, you spend your money on. If you pay with your credit card, there's information probably going around the globe just in order to make a transaction of, of 2 $3. So... The national borders, I mean, we do not have sovereign nation states anymore, but our political institutions are behaving as if the nation states are still sovereign nations. But the tech giants and the global financial market does not recognize these boundaries. I mean, they have they have to if we got governments that create the right kind of, of legislation. But if they don't, then we have tech companies that have bigger influence and more financial at least muscle power but also real technological power to move information and gather information in ways that okay then thank god the states cannot do it but as individuals it used to be that our nation states was the biggest legal entity that had any sort of authority over our life um or authority over the rules uh, surrounding or, or guiding our life, but now there, there are tech giants that are that are global, and and in this world, a lot of things are changing at the personal level, the community level, the national level, but also at the continental level, and then of course also at the global level. And as we are facing this kind of world, the epistemology, the understanding of the world, the culture that I grew up with simply does not have words for all of this. It doesn't have concepts for it. And it definitely does not have institutions for it. And so in order to thrive in this world, and in order to be meaning-making in this world and sense-making, and in order to provide for yourself in this world, you have to upgrade your understanding of the world. And you have to be a human being who is considering other issues than we had to do 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, particularly if we do want to keep an open liberal democracy as the uh, basis for our, our life. And so there are all these things going on. And when we talk about politics, when we talk about education, when we talk about 
job security or when we talk about the pandemic right now, for instance, I mean, there are all these things that 10 years ago, many of them we didn't even have concepts for. 15 years ago, Facebook didn't exist. And I guess Wikipedia was barely there either. And, and 20 years ago, the internet was brand new and we were all, well, 25 years ago, maybe 28 years ago, we got emails. So, I mean, it's there are all these new things that we've had to adapt to all the time. And the sum total of all these changes are bringing our civilization, not just our individual lives, but our civilization towards a turning point. And then on top of that, or next to that, or making this an even bigger turning point, is of course the risk of climate change, of mass extinction of species, of, you mentioned, uh, inequality. But that's, I mean, the inequality is also a consequence of the technological development and the amount of money being generated in the tech industries and in the financial industries and the way that we have set up the world to create more money. And we have detached that from, I mean, it's not the central banks that create the money anymore. It's it's uh, the private banks and it, they create the money by creating debt. So, so there, there are all these changes that if you just look at one of them, it, it may you may be able to understand that, particularly if somebody explains it to you who's, who's good at explaining stuff. But then when you have the sum total of all these changes and they interact at the global level and that affects your country and it affects your local community and it also affects your personal life and the education that you, I don't know, got maybe just five or ten years ago is suddenly useless and you still got a student loan that you cannot pay back then we're in a mess and individuals are in a situation where the resources to cope with this are not sufficient. And when you have enough people whose resources to cope with the life in which they live are not sufficient and they, there are many of those people, then you start getting a, an unstable society and, uh, and, and people are getting angry and anxious and it, it's not a good thing. Yeah, indeed. You know, one could maybe cook a lot of that down to two separate forces that interact to produce this meta crisis. One is, as you gave us a nice long list, call it the exponential growth of everything. Just the number of varieties of barbecue sauce at the grocery store. When I was first setting up a household, like there were three kinds of barbecue sauce at the grocery store. Now there's over a hundred. Why do we need a hundred kinds of barbecue sauce? God damn it. And my wife and I were talking about this not too long ago, back in 1985, when we were, you know, how old was I then? 32. You know, we each had one credit card and I had two online logins and she had zero, right? I had one for my office and one for CompuServe. Now I don't even want to contemplate how many logins I have. You know, things like when my father bought his house on the GI Bill in 1955, there was one kind of mortgage, a fixed rate, 30-year mortgage, period, take it or leave it. And, you know, he dropped out of high school after ninth grade. He was a, you know, hardworking, diligent guy, but I wouldn't say well-educated particularly. But he could easily figure out whether it was safe for him to take a 30-year fixed rate mortgage with a fixed monthly payment. And he did, and he did just fine. Could someone like him have dealt with the hyper-complex menu of financial options that were available in the United States in 2007? Probably not. Like a lot of other people, he might well have been over his head in terms of complexity and has selected a bad kind of mortgage, which could have easily exploded on him. But anyway, so 
all this exponential growth in both things that we can do, but also then the demands on our cognitive power to figure them out are a gigantic stressor. And then the second, so it's really two things, exponential growth and complexity. And the other is that we're approaching limits to growth in the biosphere. In fact, there's a lot of analysis that says we've already overshot the long-term carrying capacity of the biosphere and that we are very rapidly reaching points of catastrophic breakdown by the end of this century. And interestingly, our previous mental models of the world, which you called indigenous, pre-modern, and modern, really didn't have any concept of limits in the indigenous because they didn't have the capacity to do much, right? They had no bulldozers. They had no nuclear weapons, et cetera. Moderns and the late moderns, we developed unbelievable capability, but we never had the psychological insight that we were rapidly approaching these limits till maybe at the earliest 1962 with Silent Spring and then gradually grew into the 70s and the early days of the environmental movement. But now for at least the 30 or 40% of the world that's awake, we realize that we're rapidly approaching either a cliff or a wall, I don't know how you want to think about it, and that that has to inform everything that we do, or we're just going to smash into that wall at 500 kilometers an hour, and it's going to be an unbelievable mess. You know, life will not end. Probably humanity won't even end, but advanced civilization, it could easily fly apart. There will be like three or four people and a lot of ants. Yeah, and cockroaches for sure. And what you're mentioning here and, and what I write about in, in the book Metamodernity is these cultural codes. And you mentioned the uh, the indigenous, the pre-modern and the modern. And of course, the fourth one is, is the postmodern. And And what I claim that we need uh, and which I define as metamodernity is that we need a civilization. And so at the collective level, but also at the individual level and the way that we understand the world in order to handle this complexity, we need elements of all of those four codes because so maybe i should just quickly describe what they are about so there's the uh, prehistoric indigenous culture which is what relates to being in a hunter-gatherer tribe of maybe just 20 people or 50 people on a daily basis but that's where everybody can have eye contact within a short while and you can you can read body language and see if everybody is thriving And it's also a very egalitarian society because there aren't enough people to create a hierarchy. Uh, there can be a medicine man or a shaman or a wise old woman or somebody like that who has more power than everybody else. And of course, manipulators have always been around. But it's it's a very different kind of lifestyle and it's hunting and gathering. So there's no, I mean, people do not amass wealth and they only have the tools they can carry around with them. So in that respect, it's also a very Uh, egalitarian society and then is typically uh, animistic so people interpret spirits into nature and in this prehistoric uh, indigenous code I also put uh, early stone age agriculture so uh, settled village life with maybe a thousand two thousand people but it's still a community that's so tiny small um, that you know who belongs there and, and you can easily, you know, <clears throat> get a message through to everybody just uh, by word of mouth. And in that kind of society, and, and now we're, I mean, the, the hunter-gatherer period is just 200,000 years of, of modern human beings with our kind of brain, our, our mental cap capabilities, our emotional structure. And that is actually the kind of lifestyle that, that we were created for or that 
evolution brought forth. And we survived for 200,000 years as hunter-gatherers. And so we, we thrive in that environment. And so we thrive in small communities where we can read body language and have eye contact with everybody. And we're basically born as animists even to this day. And it's due to education that we and science that we get rid of our, our animistic worldview. Uh, five-year-olds have a, a magic understanding and interpretation of the world that we get rid of with with education and then uh with agriculture typically came an idea of a mother goddess and that the soil the earth was a mother that gave birth to uh to the crops and you got a good harvest if you were on good terms with this mother goddess so this is i mean this is the kind of lifestyle that that is deeply meaningful to us and it's deeply meaningful if if you have a vegetable garden if you grow your own food if you hunt for your own food if you you know if you go fishing i mean any kind of food that you grew or caught just tastes better than anything that you bought at the supermarket or even at a you know a farmer's market where it's, where it's just as fresh but the fact that you put an effort into bringing this food into your kitchen into your table adds something to the meal and and so that is that is an aspect of being human that a lot of us um, have forgotten or that we simply cannot fit into our life because, I mean, you live in a, in a big city and you can't really go hunting and you can't, I mean, you can maybe grow, a, a, you know, uh, some uh, herbs or something in, in your window, but that's about it. But it's, uh, I mean, how often do you get a chance to, to sit around a, a fire, for instance? That's a, a basic human need is to be, you know, a Stone Age person sitting uh, at, a, at a big fire and just telling stories and and we've lost that and we need to bring that with us and and so there's this we were built for this and, and it's a crucial part of being a human being so that's that's part of 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 what we need to bring with us into the future then there's the whole pre-modern era which is from the bronze age and iron age and so in the middle east that started i don't know five six eight thousand years ago and, and there we had or they had big ring-walled cities with 5,000 people, 10,000 people during the Bronze Age and 100,000 people during the Iron Age. And it was during this era, so from, I don't know, five, six, eight thousand years ago and until a thousand years ago that we were actually living in the pre-modern era and where religion was defining how we understood the world and or what we know as religion today was both spiritual guidelines and was also the foundation of rule of law or rule by law and um and actually until 500 years ago with with the beginning of the renaissance so um all that cultural heritage from what is that five six eight thousand years has produced uh aesthetics it's produced narrative, it's produced existential philosophy, it has produced rituals, it has produced ways of connecting people in societies that are so big that everybody cannot know everybody or recognize everybody and, and where we need uh, what is called imagined communities, where you identify with other people through a shared narrative and a shared sense of fate. And until the emergence of the modern nation state, that shared sense of fate or group belonging, imagined community was, of course, first and foremost tied up to religion. So, I mean, 
if if you were a Christian and the other person you met was a Christian, you felt that you could trust that person. Whereas if you met somebody that you knew to be either Muslim or Jewish, it was like, ooh, can I trust this person? It's not a Christian. And we still have that today. And it goes the other way as well. I mean, if you're Jewish and you see some Christian people, it's like, what kind of worldview does this person have where you tend to have a, a bigger sense of trust if people come from the same religion as yourself? And we do that with 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 the country, the nation state to this day, I mean, today, um, Americans would probably, if you travel to the rest of the world, be quicker to, to trust another American than to trust somebody from, I don't know, France or, or China, for instance. So we still have the sense of, of imagined community, and that's a, a really crucial thing, a, an ability to to identify with complete strangers, millions of strangers, if you just happen to know that they happen to have the same grand narrative as you do. Um, so so we, we got that from the pre-modern era, and of course we also got a lot of power structures, we got rule by law, we got writing, uh, we got uh, the Greek philosophy, and we got um, the patriarchy and tons of stuff. Uh, but then the, the beginning of the modern era was really with Gutenberg's invention of, uh, of the printing press with movable type, because then you, very quickly people could share information and they could share contradicting information, and suddenly people had to deal with what is truth and how do we produce knowledge, and then came the emergence of science with the Enlightenment, and, and this modern era brought us rule of law, it brought us the uh, the modern nation state, it gave us democracy, liberal democracy, it gave us capitalism, uh, it also gave us the other ideologies, um, it gave us liberalism, communism, socialism, uh, libertarianism, conservatism, and all other kinds of political isms. And then from, I don't know, 50 years ago, there was there was this new thing emerging, which is, is called postmodernism, which is a deconstruction of everything. And, and it, all of these four isms, or modernisms, the, the prehistoric, indigenous, the pre-modern, the modern, and the postmodern, are cultural codes, and they define uh, how we regulate social behavior. It's a code for what is good behavior and how we understand the world and what we can know about the world. And the uh, difference between postmodernism and the three other ones is that both the prehistoric indigenous cultures and the pre-modern cultures and the modern cultures can create, build, and sustain communities and societies. They can actually build power structures that allow thousands of people to live peacefully among each other within that community or society that shares the, the narrative or the power structures. Whereas postmodernism can really only deconstruct the understanding of all the other things. And it's really hard to, to construct a society on deconstruction if it's possible at all. And by society, I, of course, mean a group of people where you take responsibility for each other and for each other's well-being and where you, where you have to sacrifice some of your own freedoms and benefits and uh, privileges in order for other people to thrive in that society as well. And that is also what those moral codes are about. It's about how can, how can we survive as a society, as a community, and, and uh, what kind of expectations can I have to other people in this community without being too surprised when they actually do what they're going to do? So uh, postmodernism is, is different than these uh, other 
three codes. And then the idea of, of metamodernity is that we can combine the best parts of each of those four codes into a future culture. And, um, and there should be some guidelines or principles for what is what is actually a useful element to bring into the future and what are useful elements and that is really and that's where postmodernism can help us because it depends on the context so um, the tribal small community uh, personal relationships, reading body language, and having eye contact with everybody, and and basing collective decisions on just having a conversation among the 20 people in that group. That is okay if the group is only 20 people, and if if it really is a small tribe, even in a in a modern sense, and the decision only concerns that small tribe. But if you apply this kind of decision making or power structure to a society of a million or more people. And it's just still just 20 people who make the decisions and define what the power structures are and what we're going to do as a collective or what the rules are, are going to be for everybody. If that's still just 20 people deciding that for the million or more people, then we call it corruption, particularly if, if they harvest, you know, uh, favors and, um, and resources from from the rest of that society because they can use violence to to curse people to you know give them things or pay them uh, for protection or something like that. So a, a meta modern culture would be aware of the different power structures throughout these four cultural codes and the group sizes throughout these four cultural codes and what crucial contributions they have each. Uh, created and given us as part of our collective cultural heritage as a species. Um, and this now it becomes really complex, but it also makes it possible for us to say, you know what, if, if your uh, education, personal resources, your emotional needs are such that you thrive in a small group and are not yet capable of handling maybe uh, responsibility in a, in a thousand people or 10,000 people uh, entity, it is okay that you navigate according to the prehistoric indigenous moral code. You just have to understand that the rest of society, the bigger society, there the prehistoric indigenous cultural code is not enough. It doesn't suffice. It cannot regulate a, a society of a million people. But it's okay if you as an individual really only feel safe, secure, and comfortable and thrive in these small settings. But then we'll have to, you know, if, if, if you're going to participate in voting, you have to expand your understanding of uh, what national politics or city uh, politics are about. And of course, everybody should should have the right to vote. And that is why we need to demand of each other that once we reach the age of 18, at least you have some understanding of what is what is democracy about, what kind of country are you in, and what, what are the responsibilities that you have, and, and what are the limits to your political power 
and what are the rules according to which that, that we can practice this democracy and, uh, and and go voting, for instance, or run for office or whatever you want to do. Um, but the but my main point with this meta-modernity is that there are different power structures depending on different group sizes, and there are different experiences and kinds of knowledge that we have from different periods in the human evolution up to where we are today. And with the many technological and other changes that we're facing, we need to be open to the fact that not everybody can handle everything at once and all the time together simultaneously. And so we need to be able to have a conversation about where do I feel comfortable right now doing what and what kind of power structures are okay in what in which contexts and um, who has the education and the systems perspective on different group sizes and infrastructures and power structures in order to be able to make wise decisions on behalf of group sizes of different uh, size. So um, this, this it's a different way of, of looking at civilization, society, human interaction, uh, power structures, and, and what is meaningful and what we can grasp and uh, feel, where, where we feel personally empowered to actually take responsibility and not just freak out and, and think that things are too overwhelming. Ah, very interesting. Let me push back a little bit, a little bit more gently, because of the way you made the distinction about postmodernism. Those who've listened to the show know that I'm sort of an anti-postmodernist. And when I've talked with Hansi Freinacht in three episodes about his take on metamodernity, I've pushed back harder on him because he include he basically suggests that the evolution to metamodernity or whatever comes next is through postmodernism. And I'm doubtful, in fact, skeptical and anti that. And I think you hit it approximately correctly, which is you distinguish postmodernism from the indigenous, the pre-modern and the modern, and that it really isn't a civilization. It's a set of odd little things which we can learn for. And I think it's dangerous to put this progression, indigenous, pre-modern, modern, and postmodern, because most of postmodern is bad or unuseful at least. It's an analytical tool. Exactly. I mean, it's like, so, so if, if you, have, you have a ruler and a hammer, and so you can use the ruler to figure out where the you know, spike goes in the wall, but you can't you know, put the spike in the wall with the ruler. You have to use the hammer. I mean, it may be a, a bad analogy, but I mean, so, so the, other, the other cultural codes are actually you know, the hammers and rulers, and they can you know, measure what to do, and they, they're also really useful tools for building stuff. But postmodernism is not useful for building stuff. It's really useful for deconstructing stuff and for opening up a conversation where if, I mean, so I'm European, you're American, and we sit here on each side of uh, our side of the ocean. And I see some things in the U.S. that you probably don't see because you're there. And you see things in Europe that I probably don't see because I'm here. And postmodernism allows us to make that kind of perspective taking and having a conversation about this perspective taking. And that is very useful and particularly useful when we have social media and there's a whole world of, what is it, 7.6 billion people who are now being you know, increasingly connected around the globe and we have all these different perspectives. And so what modernism is not good at is to 
switch these perspectives, it's really good at producing scientific knowledge and having a progression of getting closer and closer and closer to what are the facts about the world as it is. But it's really poor at, you know, taking, let's say, the feminist perspective on the world and the conservative perspective on the world and the uh, neoliberal perspective on the world and weighing them against each other and seeing, so the, the reason why you say this as a feminist is because you see the thing through this lens, but the reason why the other person is saying this from a conservative perspective is because they see it through that lens and the two of you are really looking at the same thing, but you come with these, you know, preconceptions of, of what is what is it that you're looking at. And postmodernism can can allow us to have this meta conversation about who brings in which set of glasses when they're looking at the world and, and, and describing what they're seeing. But it's really hard. I mean on all the other cultural codes, you can bring up children. You you can bring up children as a hunter gatherer and telling them what is right and wrong, depending on the culture uh, and the mythologies and the you know the the narratives and the knowledge that is within the tribe, and you can you can bring up children in the pre-modern world and send them to church or the mosque or the temple or whatever, and there will be a priest telling them what is right and wrong. And you can send you know modern children to school and there will be a teacher telling them what is right and wrong, and that is a good thing. And and you will have children who understand what the world is like because some adults just told them. It may not be the whole truth, it was never the whole truth, but to a seven-year-old mind, that makes total sense because seven-year-olds and even 12-year-olds need to have adults around who represent truth and who represent what it means to be a good person and to tell them, well, often they also show it, but they don't you know, uh, recognize it or admit it that they're what is a bad person. Uh, but, but we're really moral beings from almost the moment when we're born. So it's really important that children are surrounded by morally responsible adults who tell them what is right and wrong. And they, their brains are just going like, mm, yummy, yummy, yummy. And now I know what, what a good person is. But then when we come to, to uh, post, postmodernism, you have this pedagogical philosophy or the insecure young parents who are like, uh, so, I mean, they don't want to indoctrinate their children or the teachers. I mean, we're so afraid the teachers are going to indoctrinate children. So they don't have any personal standpoint points, moral standpoints, viewpoints on anything. And so whenever a, a child asks what's the right thing to do, the answer is what, what do you feel like and what do you think is the right thing to do? And their brains are not ready for it. And and I think we're, we're, uh, we're breeding anxiety and confusion in children today. And, and one thing that they particularly do not understand, but which is the hallmark of postmodernism, is irony. And the only reason why you can handle irony is if you have a really strong core and sense of what is right and wrong and where you're coming from and what your what is the right thing to do then you can have an ironic attitude towards things and and you can shrug your shoulders and and we both know that i mean i know that you know that i know that you know that i know that what i just said was a joke even though i said something that had it not been said ironically, uh, it would have been deeply offensive, for instance. But we can only have that kind of exchange where you know that I know that you know and so forth if we both know 
what we consider to be truth and what we uh, consider to be the morally right thing to do. I mean, a, a, a postmodern filmmaker like Quentin Tarantino, I mean, he could only kill all those people on his, in his movies. And we were only laughing because we knew it was morally wrong. The moment that we don't know that it's morally wrong to kill all those people, those movies are not funny anymore. So um, we need the modern world, we need the pre-modern world, and we need the indigenous world in order to actually have that sense of irony and make it morally right to have that sense of irony that is postmodernism. And so uh, I distinguish between metamodernism and metamodernity. And, and metamodernism is, uh, for the most of the writers and thinkers in metamodernism that I have encountered so far, is just integrating modernism and postmodernism into a, a new cultural code. There are a, a couple of thinkers, uh, or at least one, who has realized that there was something before modernism that we also need in the future, and all of that is just lumped together as pre-modernism. But I distinguish between the pre-modern, which is the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, and then the prehistoric indigenous, which is anything in the Stone Age, really. And I integrate that into a concept of metamodernity that could be a future civilization if we so want. And that, that for me, is, is the big difference between metamodernism and metamodernity. I think that metamodernism is too simplistic. I also think it's predominantly created by a generation that grew up in, in postmodernism. And so they do not have uh, personal roots and experiences with the pre-modern culture and uh, I think that you are uh, guessing your age to be in, in your 60s. I'm in my very early 50s. But I, I, I suppose that both of us grew up with a lot of pre-modern content in our childhood and maybe even into uh, to, to adulthood. And we have a personal experience with many of those rituals and moral norms and, and things coming out of, of the pre-modern world, which... I mean, much of that is, is still, I mean, tons of it is still present in our culture, but we often experience um, a cultural conflict between the pre-modern and the modern in our post-modern society right now. Interesting point about our perspectives. Yeah, I'm 66. You guessed pretty close. I cheated. I saw it somewhere on YouTube, but that's okay. That's all right. Anyway, I still do practice, I suppose, pre-modern, even indigenous things. You know, as I've talked about on the show before, I'm a farmer. I'm a hunter. I can butcher a deer in a pinch. I can even <laughs> butcher a steer or a hog. My wife and I go outside and sometimes have our friends over, at least pre-COVID. And I'd say once every couple of weeks, we build a big bonfire out in a fire ring we have. And we just sit there and look at the stars or sing silly songs, drink a little wine. There you go. And you're happy. Yeah, and then it's good. We enjoy it. It's life. And, you know, and th this is interesting. And again, I want to push back against postmodernism because I, I really do think if we have to frame postmodernism correctly in our thinking through the way forward, and as you say, one whole school of metamodernism basically incorporates postmodernism. Another one, which we'll talk about later, I would call it the Nordic, the Hansi Freinach thing, is skeptical of postmodernism, but nonetheless shows the road going through it. And then your take on it is, uh, hey, let's be real careful what we choose from postmodernism, what we choose from the other earlier forms. 
And I think that's closer to it. I think this conversation is extremely important because, as you said, an awful lot of the thinking is grounded in people who are, I would say, suffering from the postmodern condition. And here's how I deconstruct postmodernism actually into five components. And I think this helps me make sense of it. I'm going to share this and I'd love to get your reaction to it. First, postmodernism was originally an art movement. And in fact, the very first time that as far as I can recall, I heard the word postmodernism was in 1984 in Time Magazine when they were discussing the new AT&T building in Midtown Manhattan, and they described it as postmodern architecture. This was an era for younger folks when most of the skyscrapers were just plain boxes with very little ornamentation on it, the so-called international style. This AT&T building was very expensive, very prime real estate, midtown Manhattan, and it had this Chippendale ornate top on top of it, on top of what was otherwise a fairly plain box. And this was described as postmodernist, i.e. ironic. You know, why was there a Chippendale top on an international style skyscraper? But you can see where that's postmodern, right? And there was a whole school of art. Frankly, I'm kind of old school in the art I like. I like Bach a lot better than I like hip hop. You know, and I like Renaissance painters way better than I like modernist painters, let alone postmodernists. Personally, I find a lot of postmodernist art silly, these art installations, so-called, etc. But hey, that's just me. And they don't know how to paint. Yeah, or they don't know how to paint. You know, in fact, I can still recall my daughter and I, we went as a family to the new museum in New York. And she at the time was in art school, learning the actual skills of being an artist. And she literally broke down and cried looking at the shit that was in this museum. The stuff looked like it was done by a not very talented seven-year-old with colored pencils, right? Well, anyway, again, personal values about art. Second part of postmodernism is what Hansi Freinach calls postmodern values. And those would include things like tolerance, inclusion, cosmopolitanism. I would push back and say, wait a minute. Those are enlightenment values. You go back and you read Voltaire, Diderot, Jefferson, Franklin, They advocated all these things. Now, of course, let's be honest, the world was full of hypocrisy with respect to that. All men are created equal, says Thomas Jefferson. All all white men are created equal, but yes. Exactly. While he held 200 slaves and Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, wrote Jefferson very passionate letters saying, you got to include the ladies. And of course, they did not. So while they were hypocritical, they laid down those values. So I'd say those are not postmodern values. Those are enlightenment values, i.e. mid-modernism. If you think the modern world runs from, as I like to joke, 1694, February 23rd at 10 a.m. when the Bank of England was established, <laughs> you know, just to be kind of overly precise, you could call the enlightenment kind of early mid-modernism, and it still needs to be perfected to this day. The women have finally turned the corner, I'd say around 1975, towards something like authentic, full. And very much thanks to a, a, a medical inven- invention called the pill. Absolutely. Without the pill, feminism would be incoherent. But we're not there yet, and there's still work to be done with respect to other marginalized groups. There's still work to be done, there's, but there's been a lot of progress. So I would call those values, which are sometimes labeled postmodern, actually modern, that need to be perfected. And we are on the way to do that. The third part and this may be controversial, I call the postmodern condition. And that is the people who are suffering from postmodernism. You know, the people who have never killed and butchered a deer, whose life is entirely on social media and video games, and even worse, have been exposed to a flattened, simplified form of postmodern theory 
and essentially are ungrounded, have no meta narrative. Everything is information. Nothing is real. Hyper skepticism and nihilism that science is just another way of seeing rather than being a unique and different way of seeing. I would say in the U.S., that's maybe 15% of the population. And of course, disproportionately skewed towards the younger side of the population. And these people are really suffering. I mean, they're highly alienated for goddamn good reason. If you've never made a fire for yourself, what the hell kind of person are you, right? If you've never changed the oil on your car, wouldn't know how to change the tire on your car if it had a flat. What kind of life is that? That's just weird. And I would say that what comes next needs to incorporate particularly these indigenous elements that you've been so eloquently talking about, and some from the pre-modern and the modern, that are real, that are grounded, that aren't in so deeply into the simulation, the simulacria, or whatever the fuck it's called, that some of these people talk about. You need to be more grounded in the real. My fourth part of postmodernism, I call the stance. That's the critical theory people or the theory theory people. They're the ones who kind of cooked up this woke thing that we're all suffering from here in the United States. It's probably one to 3% of the population, almost certainly no more than three. I went through the analysis on, I think, the first of my episodes with Hanzi on why that has to be the case. And so that's a small but important and problematic part of the population. And then finally, there's the tools, such as deconstructionism. I'd estimate less than 1% of the population in the West actually understands these tools, what they are, and how to use them. And to my mind, the tools, like any tool, your hammer and your ruler, can be useful in the appropriate place. And oddly enough, I know how to do deconstructionism. And where that tool is appropriate, I will use it. So I think it's very important to not consider postmodernism as something we pass through to get to where we go, I would say it's a branch, a little hopefully a stub branch of modernism that produced some bad things like the postmodern condition and the postmodern stance, but generated some useful things like tools such as deconstructionism. Yep. And I mean, so if if there actually were a postmodern society, it, it would not last because there is there is no glue. Everything is is distance and ev- or or nihilism, as as you said. If, if I'm just going to take the the five aspects here that you mentioned, I mean, yes, it started as an aesthetic movement, and um, we could call it art. But but that is also what what metamodernism started as, and it was two Dutch uh, cultural theorists. Who, who wrote a manifesto with a and 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 they were actually because the reason why they explored metamodernism and they actually got it from some I forgot his name now that's embarrassing uh, who wrote a, an article in a like 1990s about hypermodernism and metamodernism uh, so the, the word metamodernism has been around for a while but the the two Dutch uh, cultural theorists Timotheus Vermeulen and Robin Robin van den Aka, they were in 2008. They were exchange students in the UK, and that's the way I remember the story. If they uh, are listening to this and I'm I'm telling it wrong, they should uh, write you and, and c- correct me. But so they're in. I think they're students in London when the financial crisis uh, crash happens, and they've grown up in this uh, postmodern culture where you know you can choose your own path and anything is good anything i mean there there's no moral right and wrong and anything goes and you can become anything you want and the world is open and suddenly the the financial market crashes and they realize that oops 
uh, no, uh, not everything is of the same value, definitely not the same wall value. And there is such a thing as reality, and there are things that, that actually do matter. You can't just have a you know nihilistic attitude towards everything. There are actually things that are important and have deep emotional and existential meaning. And so they realize that there's a lot of stuff from this modern world that we can't afford to lose, but we still have this kind of ironic distance to everything, and we can just shrug our shoulders and joke about it. And so they, they have this sort of uh, superposition of being, if I'm to use a, a quantum uh, <laughs> concept. And and so you, you live in the superposition of both seriousness and irony and of needing intimate and close and honest relationships and distancing yourself. And I know that feeling because I'm not that old, but I, I know that feeling of I do both at the same time. And I feel both at the same time. And Fendenacker and Vermeulen uh, here are very explicit about this being a, a cultural theory. It's just a, an emotion that they have noticed in themselves and their own generation, people around them. And then they start seeing it in the arts. And then they start describing this and it becomes a, a theory of aesthetics. And that's all it is. And then... There are some people who start working with this, and actually Daniel Gertz, who's, who's one of the people behind uh, Hansi Freinacht, he was the one who found metamodernism, and we corresponded about it. So, I, I mean, I learned that term from him. But the more that I dug into this, the more I realized that it's not enough to just focus on, on the modern aspects of the world and the postmodern aspects of the world. There's all that stuff that, that came before that and that's even deeper and has even deeper existential roots. But anyway, so metamodernism started as an art movement as, as well and, as, and is now being developed by many people. The values, yes, they are they are modern, the ones that you mentioned there. And then you talked about the, the condition, and that's the, the nihilism and the irony. And, and you suffer as a human being if you're expected to not connect deeply emotionally with anything that has significance and, and that you cannot have anything of absolute value in your life. Our brains are not built for that and our emotional systems are not built for that so we're going to be anxious and frustrated and angry and afraid and depressed if we cannot have something in our life that is sacred not necessarily in a standard religious pre-modern meaning of that word but there has to be something in our life that you you simply cannot take that away from me. And I think most people who have children, I'm not one of them, but most people who have children would say, my children are sacred. I mean, don't touch my children. Um, and for others, it's don't touch my prophet. Don't make a drawing of him. And definitely do not make a mocking drawing of him. Do not make fun of my sacred texts. Do not make fun of my democracy, my freedoms, my human rights. And so the, if we cannot have something in our life that is sacred and people just keep mocking it then we suffer as as individuals and then there's the uh, the stance that you mentioned i think that woke and wokeism is actually a very important concept but like any ideology or any concept that claims to uh, or, or wants and claims a monopoly on how we see the world it won't work i mean it it 
it's like if if everything has to be conservative it doesn't work if everything has to be socialist it doesn't work if everything has to be the market it doesn't work so if if, if wokeness becomes defining for everything it's just going to ruin everything like if the market becomes defining for everything it's going to ruin everything so we need all these aspects in a meaningful life and the concept of wokeness which is is really about seeing I'm a white woman. I know that I have privileges that a black woman doesn't have. And I don't have a problem with admitting that I have a problem with it existing. And, and I, I need, I mean, in some cases I need to be aware of that, but I don't have a problem with, with admitting that there are things in my life that are way easier because I'm white. I'm Scandinavian. Um, I'm graying blonde and, um, and I, I, I look like somebody who comes out of Europe and has a, you know, a, a credit card in, in the bank. And people generally trust what I say. And there are people who look different and who are not being trusted the way that I'm being trusted. And I'm aware of that. And that affects my life. It also affects other people's lives. And there are people who are not that fortunate. And I can be aware of that. And I see that as wokeness. And I see that as an important part of being an adult in a world where we have so many different kinds of people living around each other and where we need a society to function. And the only way that we can build among each other trust and a sense of responsibility and a sense of shared community, um, imagined community, is by having that insight of the way that I look and the background that I have how has that influenced my role in my society? But also, how does that influence the way that other people view me? And uh, and I'm I'm among the fortunate people, and I have to deal with that. Others have to deal with with another situation. So I'm not against wokeness as such, but I'm against wokeness becoming a cancel culture where uh, only certain people have the right to speak in certain contexts because then we're all going to end up stupider than we were in the first place. And then there's the, the tools and the deconstruction. And yes, that is, that is important. And, um, and that is part of what, what allows us to, um, to see the world in its, its, its full richness and all the interplays of things uh, that are in, in our world and that are in our daily life, that are in politics and that, that are in, in in many places. Well, let me make one, if you don't mind, let me make one little distinction here about woke and why I put myself in the anti-woke category. As we said above, things like inclusion and getting people to an equal place at the table, etc., are solid, modern, enlightenment values. I think most good-hearted people support that. But what wokeness goes nuts is, as you say, it starts to build a broken epistemology only type person X can talk about topic Y. Even worse, and this is, we did a great interview with James Lindsay on his and Helen Pluckrose's book, Cynical Theories, where he gets down into the real weeds of how these theories came together and what they're about. The biggest flaw in sense-making around critical theory and the other related theories, post-colonialism, queer theory, etc., is they're hermetically sealed against empiricism. You know, they specifically 
reject data in the analysis, right? You know, for instance, they posit that this privilege is overpowering. It's the dominant structure of society. It structures everything. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Where's the evidence, right? Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's endogenous aspects of, let's say, black culture that are the biggest thing holding African-Americans back. I don't actually know. But you can't just say, well, no, it's microaggressions. That's the whole story right there. And be impervious to empiricism. That's where I think wokeness is brokenness, is that it not only doesn't use empiricism and data, but it actively rejects it and describes it as a form of racism. It reminds me a lot of high Catholicism in the late Middle Ages, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scholasticism. Exactly. Where to question it is itself a sin. That's where woke is broke. Not its goal. Its goal, I agree with. It's its means that are utterly broken and, frankly, dangerous in the same sense Maoism is dangerous. Yeah. And so that, that, but that's once you have, I mean, once it presents itself as the truth, it's dangerous. But anything that presents itself as the truth, where you can't question anything, it, it's dangerous and it's totalitarian and, and, it, and it's, you know, yeah, dangerous. Uh, but what I would like to also uh, emphasize here is, I mean, you can absolutely find woke academics in their 50s and 60s, but it is also a youth movement. And it's a youth movement among a generation that grew up in postmodernism. And so their frame of reference, what we gave them, I mean, we're the old people who gave them a school system within which this managed to evolve. And so if, if we had had a school system that taught science in a way that every child, you know, at the age of 16 knew what molecules and atoms and light waves and all that stuff is. And if they were good at math and we had good math teachers and actually paid the teachers a salary so that, you know, the, the, I'm not saying that the teachers aren't, aren't, aren't good enough, but it's like, if, if we really prioritize the schools and the school systems and the education and the teaching the, the arts and the aesthetics and the science and all this stuff, then we wouldn't have this problem. But if, but if we're just teaching to the test, if we have mediocre school systems, if we have thousands upon thousands of, of young people leaving school who can barely read uh, and who cannot do math and who have no concept of, of the natural sciences or it's just this sort of stuff that some boring guy was, you know, putting on a blackboard and I did I never got it, but I aced the multiple choice test because I was lucky that day. I mean, then we're going to have this kind of problem. But if we invested in our children and in our youth with good education, with, with proper schools and with teaching every child to play an instrument, for instance, so that they were you know, brought up with the ability to connect with their cultural heritage and to play with others and to listen and to listen in and be part of a group that plays together. And we gave them the extra vocabulary that comes from knowing your cultural heritage and the old hymns and the old folk songs and also the Beatles and, um, I mean, music from the 80s and the and the 90s. Um, but if the more culture that you give children, the richer their vocabulary and the more complexity they have in their own head and the better suited 
they are for handling this wokeness because then they actually then they actually have conflicting stuff inside their own head and they would have to deal with that but if if we have given them poor education and and they haven't learned science the basics of science for instance no wonder that they just think that it's a, it's a different episteme or a, a different way of looking at the world that is just as good as what my friend told me on on uh, Instagram. It's like we're guilty, um, and uh, and and we we need school systems that can handle this complexity and teach all the knowledge that we gained during modernity and all the aesthetics that we gained during pre-modernity and all of the survival skills and meaning-making circumstances and lighting a fire. And uh, uh, I'm a vegetarian. I've been so for 26 years. I would be happy not to, uh, you know, shoot any animals or, or, or fry them. But, um, you know, that connection with nature, and I think we can't even save the planet unless we we love nature and understand that we are a part of that nature and can feel it in our bones so um so there there's something that we did not do well enough and and one of the results is wokeness and it's a totalitarian kind of wokeness exactly so i'm just gonna do a quick call out here on the intersection between indigenous and complexity i've had one of my favorite guests tyson yunka porta on i think three times on the show now and he wrote an amazing book called Sand Talk. If you haven't read it, you should. He's a Australian Aboriginal person, Indigenous person, but he's also university educated and a lecturer at Australian University who's studied complexity science, amongst others. And he's done a very clever move, which is he's looked at modern civilization and or postmodern civilization with the lens of an Indigenous person plus a complexity framework. And it's quite amazing, right? I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. For those interested in, you know, how do we look from an indigenous perspective, read the book Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta. I can't recommend that book enough. It's quite remarkable. Let's move on. We're getting a little short on time here. I actually have a hard stop coming up in about half an hour, which is let's switch gears a little bit. And you call out that appropriate meaning making is the best prevention against the frustrations that generally lead to authoritarian ideologies and societal instability. Those are your words. And to my mind, as we just discussed, but let's talk about the other side too, we're currently being confronted by authoritarian ideologies of both the left and the right. You know, we have the wokes and their quasi-Maoist nightmare, and then we also have these right fascist, white supremacist, anti-Semite assholes, right? I wish the people who are sensible could just get out of the way and let those two fight themselves to the death and preferably kill each other, right? But if we're going to not let those two viruses of the left and the right make incursions into the center and to you know, sensible people everywhere, we do need to establish a meaning-making mechanism in society that deals with these two poles we talked about earlier. One, the ever-increasing complexity of our lives and the facts that we're very rapidly approaching the limits to what Mother Earth will carry. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about meaning-making in the current world. I think that, that both of these groups are somehow struggling with, with the same problem, which is that their understanding of the world does not match the complexity of the world. And if we take the, the right-wing white supremacists first, 
um, it, it's very, I mean, it, it's a lot of people in, uh, let's say, among academics who would just call them losers and fascists and um, use other kinds of, of uh, you know, very derogative words about them. And I think that we could benefit tremendously from not understanding fascism as an ideology, but a potential that we all have when our meaning making falls apart. So whenever what we used to do and which used to give good results and, you know, allow us to keep a job and provide for a family and, and live a meaningful and productive life and thrive, whenever that stops working, uh, most of us would just keep doing what used to work. And when that increasingly does not produce the, the wished for results, we're going to first get frustrated and angry and begin to suffer from anxiety. And then we're going to, you know, dig ourselves deeper and deeper into a, a black hole of, of anger and resentment and hatred towards all the people who look as if they're thriving in this world where I used to know what I was doing and now I have no freaking clue anymore. Or I think I have a clue, but the clue doesn't work. So when people lose the, the, their foothold in the world that they used to know, they are eventually going to be angry and, and they're going to be looking for simple answers and they're going to be loving any person who is promising them the past that they knew and where things were working out for them. And, uh, and, and so that is why we can't afford to not have good educational systems because everybody needs to, first of all, have a good experience with going to school and, and finding it meaningful and fun. And I mean, children come into this world loving to learn. It's, part, it's hardwired into our brains that we're looking for patterns. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for love and for adults uh, praising us for being good good persons and and so and and we're looking for patterns in the world out there in order to be able to predict what comes next and we we love to learn it it, it gives us a tremendous emotional reward when we learn something and we accomplish something and it turns out that we did things right and it worked out the way that we wanted it to be and you mentioned your your father who left high school and then got a job and, and bought a house and it used to be that you could actually do that and a lot of people did that. And then they raised a family and uh, had a very meaningful and productive life. And then they became old and then they retired and they still had a productive and meaningful life. But you can't do that anymore. And, and you have to, I mean, first of all, you have to go at least through college or get some kind of, uh, learn some kind of, of trade. And then you have to update your education and you have to update it again. And maybe you have to have a completely different education because the profession that you were in was suddenly replaced by robots or AI. And so all of these people who many had a really bad experience going to school and were lucky and they just, you know, were happy when they could finally leave the school system and just get a job and, and earn some money, they suddenly realized that they can't do that anymore and then they knew that going to school was horrible and going back is just the last thing they want to do. And thirdly, uh, they don't like to be called a, a basket of deplorables and um, other things. And are they losers? Yes, they are losers, but others are winners in the current economy and are making them losers. And those people who are the winners in the current economy need to understand that we cannot afford to have that kind of losers. 
and it's morally wrong to have that many, I mean, to have those losers and have that kind of losers in our economy and in our society. We need to create a society where there are no, I mean, there are people who lose from time to time and, and you know, not everything is, is, uh, is rosy and wonderful all the time, but we can't afford to have people who are losers to the extent that they cannot see a way out of it. And we cannot afford to have people who are being called losers, even when they are. Um, and so those of us who have the resources and the education and those of us who, um, who are creating the new technologies, I'm not one of those, uh, we need to take responsibility and we need to take responsibility for there not being created large groups of losers because that is going to destabilize our uh, societies, our economies, and peace and prosperity for everybody. So um, so the, the right wing, uh, whatever kind of supremacists they tell themselves that they are, is really a way of grappling with losing foothold in their own life and trying to come up with a narrative within which they are winners and on top of the world. And even though that narrative may not have any kind of connection to the real world and what they actually are and the way that they live and the pr prospects that they have in the current society and the current economy, having that narrative about themselves is what hold them together and, and makes life meaningful and makes them want to get out of, of bed in their bed in the morning. So we have to understand that. And, and, uh, and, and these people are in one way or the other people who got lost in the school system or the greater society one way or the other. And, and yes, they are losers in the way that they are, not the winners in the current society and economy. So that's, that's, that's one problem. But their anger and their totalitarian or authoritarian longing and their uh, longing for simple answers in many ways then resemble what is going on on the left-hand side of the political spectrum where we have the whatever pseudo-Maoist or <laughs> a struct structurally Maoist uh, totalitarian authoritarian uh, way of looking at the world through the lens of, of wokeness and critical theory and um, hierarchies of privileges where everything is suddenly reduced to to these privileges and hierarchies of, of privileges and um, there I would say we are we're facing a young generation who grew up in a post predominantly postmodern uh, culture within the modern, society and where they were not, I mean, they were not participating in, let's call it moral communities. I mean, communities of moral values. It can be the scouts, it can be a church, it can be any kind of strong community where people are focused on, on what is morally right and wrong. And if you grow up without that kind of guidance, the world is a very confusing place. And then suddenly uh, there is a, a critical theory that tells you that there is an order in things after all. And it's it's about power hierarchies. And if we have even, and I, I know that's the case in Denmark, but uh, I suspect it might also be the case in the United States and, and elsewhere. Uh, we used to teach history as a narrative. We used to teach it, so we started in the Stone Age and then came the uh, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, just as, as I told it now. And then came, you know, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and modernity and blah, blah, blah. And then now we're here. 
Uh, in the U.S., of course, that has, has been a harder way to uh, teach history because there are so many different cultures uh, that live together, and there's the whole uh, indigenous American culture that was um, uh, eradicated and um, and where there are still consequences to a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, today. It's easier to have that kind of history uh, lessons when, when it's a place like Denmark where you can just tell the Danish history from the beginning and the first hunter-gatherers when the ice melted and, and Denmark actually became habitable uh, and until today. But the, the, the narrative and the sense of, oh, things happened uh, in, in a certain order. I mean, there were things that happened before something else and, and the later things could not have happened had the first things not happened uh, before that. And it's, it's not that somebody planned history. It's not that there is an actual direction in history. It, it's not like there is, in, in that respect, order in history and that it is progressing towards a bigger or higher goal, the only thing that you can say is that there's increasing complexity and from time to time complex systems crash and then you have decomplexity and maybe even you know entropy for a while until a new organization emerges and then you have new complexity. Um, so overall there's this inner process in the workings of the world, both in the natural world and in, in cultures and uh, among people of um, increasing complexity and then from time to time that disappears through a crash or war or natural disaster or something. Um, but if if the history lessons, the, the way that we've taught history to children has been like, okay, so now we have uh, a month about uh, slavery and colonialism and then we have two weeks about the indigenous peoples on the American prairie. And then we have two weeks about uh, the Soviet Union, and then we have something about the Vikings and then uh, the, the Chinese Ming dynasty. If we teach history like that, then there is no sense of history unfolding, and there is no sense of, hmm, we're actually way better off today than we were 50 years ago, at least in the West, and definitely better off than 500 years ago or 800 years ago. And yes, there is structural racism, and yes, there is structural male chauvinism and other kinds of oppression, but it's nothing compared to what it was three generations ago. So there is progress. Things are actually better. And it's not perfect, but it is overall going in the right direction. But if you haven't had you know, any proper... Uh, education and history, you can't see that. And and so if, if we just, you know, teach these thematic topics of, of like a, a short period in history and then jump from, from topic to topic, the only thing that you can actually show the students or the pupils is, so what was the power structure in the Ming Dynasty? What was the power structure in the American Prairie? What, what, what was the power structure... In, in the slavery. Uh, and then when you leave school and study something else, such as critical theory, that is all you can see in, in our society and, and through history. And so um, I, I think that we need to have a serious conversation about what is the proper education for uh, the different age groups in our school systems and how do we 
how do we make, how do we create an education that in meaningful ways allow children to connect with their place and the nature where they are and with the uh, uh, indigenous culture. And in, in this respect, I also talk about an indigenous modern American culture, uh, which I guess is, is what the rest of us uh, benefited from with, for instance, the uh, the Marshall uh, Plan. Um, but the, the American pop culture, I mean, that's an, an indigenous American culture, but there is an, an in modern America, there is an indigenous indigenous American culture before that, um, that that comes with that place and with that tradition and, and that environment and that nature. And children need to know that in the place where they are. Um, and, um, and then, of course, if you have parents or, or a family that migrated, you need to know it from two places or maybe even three places so that you know where you're coming from and where your family is coming from. And once you have that, and you have a strong sense of that, and it's deeply ingrained into your, I mean, it's part of your character. Then when you travel the world and meet other people who have different cultural backgrounds and who look at the world and from a different perspective because they have their roots deep down into another culture somewhere else, then it doesn't feel so dangerous. It doesn't feel so terrifying or anxiety-provoking because you know where you're coming from and and you can actually meet other cultures, not just with curiosity and openness, but also with the ability to actually share and have a meaningful conversation and learn something. Um, and I think that is that is where one of the, the shortcomings of the whole postmodern generation uh, and it's it's not their fault, um, but but that is what we're up against, and and it's serious. It really is, and and uh, it's it's really hard to, for instance, with the with the coronavirus, if people have no idea about what is an atom, what is a molecule, what is uh, a virus, what is a bacteria, what is single cell life, and what is complex life, and you cannot relate those things at the scientific level talking about a virus just becomes some sort of oh there's something dangerous in the air and why would i trust a vaccine so i mean we're we are really where we brought ourselves yeah, that's why i refer to trump as the first postmodern president absolutely you know he just is disconnected from reality you know he's a free-floating whatever he says is what he says and he could say a on monday b on tuesday c on wednesday all that contradict each other and he doesn't seem to have any tension about it at all he's the perfect postmodernist, right and a very dangerous example of how to try to build a society let's now move to how to build a society and one of the things that's come up in our game b work quite a bit is the creative tension between two things. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. And you, and you address it in the book. You may not use these exact words, but you certainly talk about it, which is at one level, it seems like we need, well, we certainly need new institutions. The institutions we have are, as you say, 30, 50, and 100 years old at best. Hell, American Constitution is now, what, 230 years old. And it was a thing of great beauty when it was written. It's, it's somewhat antique today. At the other hand, our institutions have to be built of people? And can we upgrade the capacity of our humans? And I think the answer to that is yes, but we have to be very careful. The idea of creating the new man or the new person, 
has unfortunately been the hallmark of some of the worst totalitarian systems. Exactly. Yeah. It's like whenever you want to do the right thing, it's like, oh, somebody actually tried that and it turned out really horrible. Yes. Yeah. The French Revolution, the Nazis, the Marxist Leninists, you know, they all got to make a new man. Nonetheless, it seems like if we're going to have institutions that can really deal with exploding exponential increase in complexity as we race towards the limits of our planet, make the job easier if we are able to increase the capacity of people. And, you know, I'm, I'm a skeptical. In fact, for a long time, I said, I have, whenever I hear of a theory, I apply the no new man rule, or if it requires a new man, it's a bad idea. But I do think now that we can do things through education, through psychotechnologies, getting people more in touch with their inner being, you know, the concept of state. And I just love your thoughts on, on the kind of the coevolution of human capacity and human institutions as a kind of meta way to think about moving towards what comes next. So two things. One is what goes on or should go on inside the mind of, of the individual, and, and the other thing is the institutions. And then, of course, there's a third part, which is what the culture, the collective culture. So when we address the, the humans, the individuals, uh, my crucial message would be that instead of talking about a new man, I would say an expansion of the existing man and woman uh, and third gender, whatever you want to call it. I mean, an, an expansion of what is already there. We can all grow. And everything that you have learned so far has qualities to it. I'm not, we're not, whatever we want to call ourselves, uh, we're not here to take away anything from you, but we're here to add stuff to what you already know. And we're here to add things and meaning and uh, cultural richness and experiences in nature to what you already know. And here's, here's how you get access to it. And that's where then where the new institutions come in or improvement of the existing institutions. So how do we provide for all of us in our societies access to more knowledge, more culture, more meaning making, more nature, more, you know, going out on the weekends and creating a bonfire. Or maybe you maybe maybe we could have, you know, Tuesday night is bonfire night. And so uh, everybody, you know, will have access to just, you know, sitting around a bonfire and, and saying nothing looking into the flames and then going home and having a glass of wine, whatever. But we need to figure out ways to enrich people's lives and add to what is already there. And whenever you start talking about a new man, uh, it's usually with the idea that the one that's already there is wrong and we need to eradicate it, get rid of him, and then we're going to get the perfect world. And so the other, the other important message, message is that we're never going to get a perfect world, but we can do a lot of things a lot better. So that that's one that that's one aspect of it. Then there's the okay. Then let's take the uh, the culture, the collective culture, a culture that had that as a value. And right now we have a focus on economic growth. And one of the reasons we have a constant focus. There are two reasons actually. One is that we need to pay back the existing debt and interest on that debt. And our system collapses from time to time when we cannot generate enough more money in the system to pay back the debt that's already there. And I don't know how we get around that. Uh, the other reason is that nation states have decided that GDP and growth in GDP is how we measure 
whether a state is successful or not, which is a stupid way of measuring the success of a state. There is no reason why uh, a growing GDP should be the one thing that tells us whether our country is a success or not. I mean, there are many, many other things that we could measure, such as, is everybody a producer and a consumer in the economy? Uh, what is the level of, of inequality? Can everybody provide for themselves in the economy with the existing number of years of free education? Can everybody enter the workforce debt-free? I mean, there, there are so many things that could be the measuring stick for a functioning country. And then we chose this one item called GDP and whether it's growing or not, which of course matches the you know, need for creating more money in the system in order to pay back the debt. So there's, if we had another goal for our society, which might be, is everybody finding life meaningful? I mean, like Bhutan that has a, a national gross domestic uh, happiness index. Um, and, and there are many other things that we, that we could measure if we need to measure anything at all. Um, so that's, the, that's the, the, the cultural thing. Can we change the culture so that we simply value something else than money and the market and that politics then become, becomes politics again, which then takes us to the institutions and, um, and the need for, uh, I mean, some of the, the institutions of the future may be algorithms. I mean, I could easily imagine that there that there would be some sort of of algorithm through which all uh, financial products would have to run in order to check whether they're doing what they're claiming that they do. I mean, right now, Facebook it's it's a private uh, company into which we give all our private information of all kinds, and they can make analysis on the patterns and how we what kind of information we provide and who we know and, and who we hang out with and who we meet in real life because they could basically just uh, put facial recognition on all the pictures and figure out who were at the same event if they analyzed all the pictures. So a way to control a company like, like Facebook and what they're doing with our data would be to run their algorithm through another algorithm and seeing what it actually does. Um, and there could be, I mean, I could have maybe one a future institution is that before I go on, on Facebook, I log on to this institution's website that filters uh, some of, of the content that I, that I meant to upload. It puts into, in a, a layer of, of disguise between me and what goes on on Facebook. So I can actually watch what's going on on Facebook, but Facebook cannot see that I'm the one doing it. I mean, there's, see, I'm not the technical kind of person here, but there, we think of institutions as buildings with people in them. And, and where you uh, fill in papers in order to communicate with them or you send them an email. But maybe an institution could be an algorithm doing new things that, that we haven't had institutions for before. And, and what, what they, it, it could also be, you know, all the credit card uh, companies that can track what we buy and uh, details in our consumption patterns. An institution, an algorithm could be some kind of filter that just sends the amount to my uh, to my credit card company, uh, but the data about where where I spent the money stays with me. I mean, there there are all kinds of of uh, of new things that that 
that we need in order to protect ourselves against those uh, data collectors. And then there's the institutions for lifelong learning, for instance, and the uh, what kind of, I mean, if, if we live to be 110 and we need to uh, upgrade our, our professional skills every, I don't know, five or 10 years, there needs to be another kind of, a funding for education otherwise we would just you know either get poor and poor education or create more and more debt and so there there has to be another way of making that uh, accessible to people so we need a different kind of, of taxation maybe we should tax bits and maybe we should tax uh, square meters in our homes and maybe we should, I mean so so if we were to tax bits uh, we would have to have an algorithm that picked up or, or measured how many bits we were each using, or maybe it's just the companies that uh, owns the cables that have to pay the taxes, and then they, you know, charge people using the, the hardware. It's I don't know, but it's just the old institutions are not enough. It doesn't mean that we're going to get rid of the old institutions. It just needs means that we need to be creative and figure out what kind of institutions do we need from now on in order to. Um, keep sovereign nation states, to have functioning continents, to have uh, healthy and thriving communities within our countries, uh, and to keep political freedom and uh, human rights and all the good stuff. That it took so, I mean, it took 200,000 years for our species to get that, with along with modern medicine that can actually give us the most amazing lives that your and my grandparents could barely even dream about, and definitely not our great-grandparents. Um, and then we're just, you know, risking throwing it all away. It's just so depressing. But there's hope. I mean, we can choose another path. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, when I use the word institutions, I do use it in this much broader sense. I mean, I would include a monetary system, for instance. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, I invented one much better than Bitcoin. In fact, if you want to check it out on YouTube, it's called Dividend Money, an alternative to central banker-managed fractional reserve banking. And it attacks exactly the flaw you pointed out, which is our current money is based on debt. My system is not. So it can be done. And, and I would also say we should be thinking broadly about all these kinds of functional plumbing in our society. For instance, you pointed out that there's lots of people who really aren't interested or competent in thinking about management beyond the Dunbar number, 150 people. Well, there are other people who do like to think about such things. Why not use something like liquid democracy or you know, delegative democracy, where you can delegate your vote to somebody else that you trust that shares values with you and does know more about the bigger picture? And then they can re-delegate in a kind of recursive fashion. I think it's worth thinking about those kinds of structural changes and how our democracy works, which gives us the amazing power of direct democracy and yet lets people mostly delegate their votes who know more and care more about the issues. And whether the actual form of liquid democracy is the correct form or not, it seems to me it's time to be exploring an institutional design space to address some of these horrible problems that we're, we're confronting. Right. And one of the things that I, that I think we should, should do is that, I mean, a small country like Denmark, and we have a couple of islands, particularly one that's kind of away from everything else. Um, I mean, I think we should have these zones where we experimented with new institutions. Uh, and then you have the rest of the country or the neighboring countries like the, like the EU. If, if Denmark or Estonia, another you know, tiny country, was willing to experiment with a new institution, an institution like the EU would say, okay, 
the rest of us are going to co- cover your ass if this turns out to be just the worst experiment ever and you ruin the country. Then we're going to, you know, we're going to help you out afterwards. But we need to see if this actually works. And there's something interest, uh, interesting. Estonia has made e-Estonia, where anywhere in the world you can become an e-citizen of, of Estonia. It doesn't mean you get an Estonian passport and can actually travel there. But you can get all the online benefits of being a a citizen of Estonia, which means you can have a bank account, you can use their courts, and I mean, there are all kinds of things that, that you can, anything that's that's online. And that's just, I don't know why why no other countries have done that, but it's, it's, it's just brilliant. Yeah, a friend of mine's involved with that effort, actually. It's, it is brilliant. And I love the idea of empiricism, experimentation, exploration, the way we're going to figure out these high dimensional problems. It's not going to be somebody figures out 45 dimensions, what's exactly the right answer in all 45 dimensions. It's got to be by trial, experimentation, informed by theory, but not with the world of theory. Well, we're unfortunately, I'm only about halfway through my notes for this episode, as happens fairly often. We got into it deep, which is great, but I think it's about time to wrap it up. Do you have any final thoughts before we end this show? I would just that, no nothing that I that I haven't said. I mean, I could talk about many many more things, but but I would say uh, my my concluding remark would just be: this has been a, a great pleasure, and I think that we have such a rich cultural background and so many so much science and so much knowledge as a species and as a civilization that we have all kinds of opportunities ahead of us. And it's really a choice of uh, raising awareness and education and uh, creating a more um, open-minded, richer, exploring and curiosity-driven culture. And then we, I mean, the sky's the limit. Well, thank you very much. This has been an incredibly interesting and deep conversation. Those who want to read more, check out Lena Anderson's book, Metamodernity. Thank you very much. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.